So with one hand, you're going to hang on to 2 Peter chapter 2. With the other hand, you're going to go to Genesis chapter 19 because we're going to need to read a bunch out of Genesis chapter 19 to get the context of what God is trying to teach us in 2 Peter chapter 2. So 2 Peter is the series we're studying here at First Baptist Church, and the theme of the book is spiritual growth and maturity. And so we've seen how that's developed through chapter number 1, and when we come to chapter number 2, the theme of chapter number 2 is really all about hindrances and things that will try and hinder your ability to continue to grow spiritually before the Lord. And so in the first three verses we studied that the hindrances come through false teachers. And we saw the very satanic nature of that. So the hindrances, I put this in your note in verses 1 through 3, your growth is hindered by the devil. Uh, It's hindered by the devil himself as he tries to uh, have representatives who will stand and hold forth God's word, but inaccurately. And get you to have some sort of a false assurance in something you think is true, when actually it's not true, and then there's really no hope of you ever hearing the truth and applying it. And then last week we looked at verses 4 and 5 and the story of Noah and and the fallen angels of that day and some of the craziness that went on, and and we learned that the hindrance from verses 4 and 5, that our growth is hindered by the flesh. It's hindered by the flesh. And we talked a little about, you know, physical immorality and some of the things that our flesh lusts after, and how that is a hindrance to continuing to grow in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today what we're going to see primarily in verses 6, 7, and 8 uh, is that you will try, the devil will try to um, hinder your walk by using the world system. So you're hindered by the world. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to talk about the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll get into that as we go. But but it's not surprising that what you have is the three and only three enemies— that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, Human beings are not your enemy. Uh, Religions are not your enemy. Uh, Opinions, philosophies are not your enemy. It is the world, it is the flesh, and it is the devil. And that is defined for you very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses where it says, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead before your salvation in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past before you were saved, right? You walked according to, notice, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, speaking of the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in, here's the last one, the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so there you have all three enemies described in that passage. You have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. Now, the world can influence you in a lot of different ways, and they're all bad. And so in different cultures of the world, it plays out in different ways. And so we prayed for some of our missionaries who live in hostile environments to the gospel. Uh, In the United States, it's interesting because what we have here is a life in the Western world that's very wealthy. It's very comfortable. uh, It's very safe you have an abundance of opportunities. And generally speaking, people enjoy their lives here. That's why most of the developing world dreams of the ability to be able to emigrate to the United States of America. Uh, I had the opportunity to live in Albania for 14 years. And in Albania, the daily life is very different. It's very poor. Generally speaking, most people are very selfish Uh, It is without rule in a lot of ways. It is very anarchic. Uh, Daily life is very difficult. There's open corruption. And not a lot of people among the general population enjoy daily life in Albania. So if we were just picking, I mean, which would you prefer? Well, most of us would prefer an easier life, of course. But I might just throw out that the church in Albania then because of the extreme difficulty of the world system that's so obvious the church becomes a refuge and a safe haven an oasis a place where the believers come in the doors of the church and they recognize oh finally I'm at home finally and and the Christians generally I mean people are people but generally 
truly love each other and encourage each other. And it's a, it's a huge blessing, actually, to see the change. Because they know that the world is their enemy. But in the United States, not all Christian people really know that the world is still your enemy. A lot of Christian people in the United States think the world is their friend. They might not think about it, but the way that they live is, wow, I mean, the world has a lot of fun, wonderful things that are offered to me. I want to go and take advantage of many of them as I possibly can. And as a result, what happens is, similar to Lot in Sodom, as we'll see in a minute, their soul becomes vexed because they enjoy the world too much. So at the end of the day, it's just plain hard to live for God in this present evil world because it's one of our enemies. So the story is the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you would, turn, flip over to Genesis chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to read much of it. It's, so it's a lot of, lot of reading, but not all of it. Um, but I want you to follow along and just kind of get context because we'll make reference to this then as we get back to 2 Peter chapter number 2. You all ready? Okay, Genesis chapter 19. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. That's going to be important because Lot sat, to sit in the gate meant he was in a place of respect, a place of honor, a place of leadership. Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, these angels, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, unto your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, this hospitality that he had is a great thing, and they turned into him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they laid down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot and said, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Now, I made a reference last week, and if you were here, you might remember, and if you weren't, it's okay. I do want to point out that whenever angels appear to men, in the Bible, they always appear as men. So the men of the city, the angels are defined in verse 1. They come into Lot's house, but the men of the city don't know they're angels. They just think there's men staying with Lot. There's new visitors to our town, and they wanted to know them in a biblical sense. I think you know what I'm talking about. So Lot is embarrassed. Lot has these holy men, these angels, inside his home, and these evil men of the society outside his home. And what does Lot do? Verse 6, he went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. You can see the picture, can't you? It's this, this terrible crowd on the outside. Good guys are on the inside, and they're knocking on your door. They want to talk to you, and you're like, oh, okay, hang on a second. You open the door, and you shut it real quick. Let's just talk out here. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to really let them know about what's going on. So that's what he does in verse 6, and, and said, he, Lot says to these men, I pray you, notice, brethren, kind of a problem there, do not so wickedly. And his judgment is just out the window, right? Lot has lost all bearings on right. Verse 8, behold now, I have two daughters, which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And that Eastern culture would have said, if somebody comes into your home for a sanctuary, you do everything to protect them. But Lot's reasoning is just crazy at this point in his life. And the men, now in verse 9, say to Lot, they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. In other words, the people say to Lot, look, just get out of the way and let them decide for themselves. We'll take care of you later, Lot. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men from the inside, the angels now, the men put forth their hand, pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness 
both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So these perverse men of the city of Sodom that so wanted to know, in a biblical sense, these visitors to the city, when they actually were struck with blindness, didn't just decide, oh man, what happened? I better go to the doctor. I better go home. No, as newly blind, they wearied themselves, oh, where is that door? Because we must have this new flesh. It was that vile. Verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, thy sons, thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. The Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Notice, but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So Lot finally takes a stand to proclaim the literal coming judgment of God. But apparently his life never really proclaimed that before because now the sons-in-law are like, really? You're joking, right? You are telling us about the literal judgment. Come on, come on, man. You're joking. They thought he mocked. That's what they thought. And so, verse 15, when the morning arose and the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. So he said, Get, get your family that's in the house, let's get out of here. And, and Lot's like, Okay. But he lingered. You know, well, maybe, I mean, just a little more before we go, huh? And the men took him by the hand. And upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of the two daughters, and the Lord being merciful unto him, they brought him forth and set him without the city. And so the story goes on. Let's just go ahead and pick it up like in verse 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities that which grew upon the, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And if we went to the end of the story, starting in verse 30 all the way to the end, and you can look at it, ultimately they make it out and the daughters made it with Lot, but their judgment is just gone nuts and they make some crazy conclusion that man there's no other man left in this whole area so here's what we'll do we will take turns and lie with our father so that we can have children to continue to propagate and they ultimately have children and the children's name are Moab and Ammon who become enemies of Israel for the rest of history this is the context this is the story now second Peter chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse number 6. We'll read through to verse number 10. Talking about the hindrances to our growth. And the ultimate hindrance in this case will be the evidence of the world system. Verse number 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds the lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished but chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government presumptuous are they self-willed they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities so we're going to see how the devil uses the world system against you and what God thinks about it. Let's just take a second and pray, and we'll walk through our outline. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you will make the connections, that we will see that what has happened in the past truly is an example of what will happen again in the future if the circumstances so align themselves. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to understand the story from history the teaching for forever 
but the application for today. Lord, we desperately need to know so that we can make the right choices and please you with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first and most obvious thing we have to look at is what I'll call the incineration of a worldly society. I mean, fire and brimstone. Brimstone is basically, if you want to make an easy comparison, would be like burning tar, okay? So great balls of fire, you know, that kind of thing. And they're, you know, it's raining these things from heaven. And uh, so hence, you know, in the old church culture, they used to say things like, turn or burn, right? Uh, the updated version would be, Sanctify or French fry? Um, you know, it's a witnessing technique. It's just something to think about. Um, since I have moved to Ohio, one of the elements of y'all's culture here seems to be that a lot of people like burning things. I like it too. I mean, controlled, you know. But everybody likes to, you know, it kind of doesn't matter what it's like. Hey, let's have a fire, and let's just watch it. Um, that's a, I mean, I'd, I kind of dig it. There's something mesmerizing about a fire, isn't there? Okay, so next time you're doing that at your fireplace or whatever it might be, and you burn a big fire, and you're scooping out the ashes, see if you can't just allow the Lord to remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, ultimately, the picture that it paints for us that we'll see in just a minute. Because it says in verse 9, God knows how, yeah, to deliver the godly, but to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished, right? So letter A under point number one is the punishment. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow. To condemn literally just means to be judged and found guilty. So what made Sodom and Gomorrah so unjust? Well, typically, we point out the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our English language carries the word sodomy for a reason. Because it comes from the story of Sodom. I understand people don't like that today. I understand that there's pushback when people say, well, no one sin is worse than another. And that sounds good. I I guess that's true in the sense that all sin, according to the Bible, is the transgression of the law and punishable. It is true, absolutely, we need to keep in balance, that all sexual sin will be judged. Heterosexual sin will be judged. Any kind of sexual sin is going to be judged, not just homosexual sin. But there is something particularly evil about this one. And it is the end of a downward progression of sin. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 26 and 27, it says, For this cause God gave them up, and he calls it vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So when the conversation comes up and people want to debate whether or not same-sex attraction is an issue of nature or nurture, the Bible makes it very clear it's not nature because he very clearly says doing such things is against nature. Verse 27, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. Now today's message is not about this subject. We did the book of Romans years ago, and you can find that if you want to and listen to it. But I want you to see that there is something particularly evil about Sodom and Gomorrah. So the parallel to 2 Peter chapter 2 is the little book of Jude. And in the little book of Jude, one chapter only, verse number 7, it says this, in parallel to what we just read in Peter, 
even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, notice this, and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So similar to Noah's day, which was the previous example in 2 Peter chapter 2, the lust of uncleanness was we saw these sons of God, these angelic beings, come down to earth and take wives of human women and had relations with them. It's crazy. Well, it's actually not different in Sodom because these men of the city, did they really know or not know? We don't know, but they were desiring the flesh of what actually were angels again. So in Sodom, it's not just homosexuality, as though that's the worst possible sin that's out there. Apparently, there's something that's even worse about desiring relations with angels, or, you know, I know it's weird to say it, but the law of Moses does also denounce craziness where humans somehow want to join themselves to animals. Why would he denounce that if people weren't given to do crazy things like that? Well, there's other issues in a society that God judges, and I want to point out to you that any society that denigrates to the point where they're willing to accept what God clearly calls sin, that society's in danger. In Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 20, God says this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Okay, people are doing some crazy things, but if all of us say, well, that's okay, that's good. That's it. God says it's evil, I say it's good. God says it's good, I say it's evil. That's kind of what's going on around today, isn't it? That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him therefore as the fire devoureth the stubble there you have it and the flame consumeth the chaff so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust why here's the ultimate sin right it's none of those other things the real issue is this because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So, I heard a preacher say it one time, and I thought it made a lot of sense. He said, you really only have two choices in life. It's either back to the Bible, or it's back to the jungle. You're going to go one of those two directions. And if you reject the authority of the Word of God, well, all bets are off. No telling what might happen. The biblical issue is authority. It's always authority. Judges chapter 21, the last verse of the book of Judges, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. The king is the representation of authority. So what? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I don't care what the king says. There's no king. I do what I want. Get out of my face. Leave me alone. That's for you. This is for me. Today we call it political correctness. And political correctness, friends, is nothing more than soft-selling the truth. And people acquiesce. Maybe you acquiesce. That's fine. I'm not telling you to paint billboards and march around and be rude and crude and socially unacceptable. But sometimes people acquiesce to the pressure of the society in language choice and political correctness ultimately because we fear the government. We fear the consequences if we didn't show some political correctness, right? But these, 2 Peter 2 verse 10, it says, these despise governments. They despise any kind of a rule. Anything that restricts their freedom of expression. Anything that restricts me in any way is evil. That's the idea today. Presumptuous are they. Self-willed. Not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Can I just tell you, 
you better be careful if you find yourself getting sucked into a frenzy of anti-government rhetoric. I mean, I get it. You can have your preferences, and I hope you vote, and whatever, whatever. You have your opinions. It's totally up to you. I mean, Baptists have always believed in the separation of church and state. Do what you want to do. But if you get sucked, if your Facebook or Twitter feed demonstrates that you are so driven by all of this speaking evil of dignities, you better look twice at what's really motivating you. God's judgment is sure on an evil society. And so once again, like in the days of Noah, it's a picture of the second coming. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 28, because the previous verses have to do with Noah. It continues in verse 28. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded, carrying on their daily lives. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus Christ will return to judge the whole earth. Armageddon, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes, it will be sudden, and it will be complete. And only believers will survive. That's the truth. That's the doctrine. That's the prophetic picture. That's what's being said. So that has to do with the punishment, the punishment that's given. Letter B, the pattern, the pattern. Because going back to 2 Peter, it says, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Don't let the old English word ensample confuse you. We typically just use example. It's not wrong to do that. Ensample, just remove the en prefix. It's a sample. It's a picture. It's a pattern. It's an example. It's okay. That's what it means. It's a precedent. So Sodom and Gomorrah stands as an example for any ungodly society, making them an ensample unto those that afterward might choose to live that way. So the whole society of Noah's day, the society of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God references Sodom and Gomorrah many times throughout the Scripture, and he's, they're always referenced as a bad example, an example of judgment. So you have Moses refer to it, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Amos, and Zephaniah, and the Gospels of Jesus, and Paul, and, and on and on and on. Every time it's referenced, it's referenced negatively, of course. Because the only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn anything from history. And people who won't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And there are patterns in history. And God told you that Sodom and Gomorrah is one of them. So beware. So in your notes I put this. Sodom and Gomorrah would have been vocal civil rights activists. They would have been vocal civil rights activists. How do you know that? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What is the iniquity of Sodom? What does it say about the iniquity of Sodom in Ezekiel 16? Notice the list. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. So I made a little list for you that correlates with what we see in Ezekiel 16. They were proud. They were plenteous, right, full of bread. They were procrastinators, right? They had abundance of idleness. They were lazy. They were prejudiced. They weren't benevolent. They didn't help the poor and the needy. Uh, they were provocative. They were defiant. What they did, they did before the Lord in his face. And they were perverse. They committed abomination. I don't know about you. That sounds a lot like the United States of America to me. And God said in Ezekiel 16, referring to Sodom, therefore I took them away as I saw good. Well, it's interesting because when we study church history, and many of you know this already, 
There are seven eras of church history that cover the 2,000 years since the cross and leading up to the rapture, and the last of which, these are the seven churches that are defined in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the last of which is Laodicea. And we throw that word around a lot. If you're new to our church or haven't studied the Bible a lot, you may not fully understand what that's all about, okay? But Laodicea, the word Laodicea, the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, the word Laodicea literally means, if you translated it, the rights of the people. That's what it means. The rights of the people. Civil rights. And so in these last days, in this century, that's what we see a lot of, right? It's the last church era before the rapture of the church. That's us. It's the characterization of the society in which we live. We live in a day and time when everybody is fighting for their rights as though they were truly deprived of those rights. Now, obviously, there are genuine human rights abuses. Yes, of course. Obviously, there are times when indeed we should defend the defenseless. I'm not saying that. Of course that's true. But when a society goes to the ridiculous extreme where we begin to defend ferociously the rights of those that are clearly defined as sinful according to the scriptures then our society has a problem friends then we have a problem when it's against all logic when it's against the word of god so the only thing men learn from history is that men never learn anything from history and Sodom and Gomorrah would have been vocal civil rights activists. And Laodicea is the textbook definition of a time in which that is so important to everybody. And can I just throw out there, if you really study history, y'all, we got it good. We're not, I mean, there are people who suffer. But most of us, no, we ain't suffering. You live better today than the richest king 200 years ago lived. The, the, the informational power you have in your pocket, unprecedented. The comfort climate control you can dial in in your automobile in your home, and er nobody's ever lived so good. The ease and the speed at which you can travel all the way around the world, nobody's ever had that opportunity. We live pretty good. We live pretty good. So, as a result, Sodom and Gomorrah provide God's loving warning for us today. God is loving, and he's long-suffering, and he's going to give you some time. His mercy endures, but not forever. For a while, there's coming a day. It's said that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example and ensample unto those that should, after, live ungodly. So in the days of Noah, it lasted for a while, but not forever. In the days of the Tower of Babel, God was long-suffering for a while, but then he wiped them out, confounded the languages. Sodom destroyed it with fire. Egypt, all the plagues of Moses, didn't wipe them all out, but many were dead, all the firstborn, right, for sure. All the idolatrous pagan nations that inhabited Canaan when Joshua brought the children of Israel in, take no prisoners, right? Kill them all. Let me ask you a question. Where are the Babylonians today? Where are the Moabites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites? Where are those guys today? They're not here anymore. They're gone. You ever wondered why the United States isn't in Scripture? I mean, do you really think we're going to survive? Listen, the thing that's clear is clear. God will judge all sinful societies. Eventually, right? Eventually. You don't know how much time you've got. So, that's the simple, straightforward, clear warning that God gives us through the Scripture, the second main point in your study. In the meantime, while the long-suffering exists, you need to beware of point number two. The influence of this worldly system because you still got time you're still breathing free air god's still allowing you to hang out and to have an opportunity to make a difference right but the world system is trying 
It is trying. It is working on you. It is trying to drag you down like it did with Lot. Verse number 7, delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So, let's talk a little bit about a practical application. We've seen the historical. We've talked a little bit about the doctrinal teaching. Let's talk about a practical application today. Because right after a person gets saved, if you truly have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for a new birth and a new life and a new start, well, what's going to happen is you're going to begin to immediately begin to separate yourself from some of the natural influences that were negative in your life before you were saved. That just happens. People get saved, they get excited, they start leaving things behind that were wrong, and they start picking up things that are right. That's what happens. And, and so it is the application of what we saw in chapter number one, add to your faith virtue. Do the things you know you need to do and quit doing the things you know you need to quit, right? That's what naturally happens in the life of a brand new believer. Can I get an amen? It happens. So letter A, the change, the immediate change, right, in a life. Initially, there's separation from the worst of the world. So I've told my story a bunch of times, and I don't need to retell it. Just suffice it to say, I had plenty of bad habits when the time came that I trusted Christ as my Savior. And without knowing any Bible, I knew that some of those things were just detrimental and bad and wrong. Some of them were illegal. I knew I had to quit that stuff. It was just natural. It was easy. Of course I did that. And then, without anybody telling me, and I didn't even know what was going on, there was born in me a desire to read the Bible and to hang out with Christian people and to go to prayer meetings and to go to church every Sunday and never... Listen, nobody ever had to call me on Sunday morning to make sure I woke up, to make sure I made it to church, ever. Man, I, I didn't know anything about the Bible. Any, I was on a college campus. Any campus group that was talking about Jesus, I was there. So, assemblies of God. I want to assemble with God. I'm there. Church of Christ. I, I want to be with Christ in a church. I'm there. I don't care who you were. I didn't know any different about anything. If you were naming Jesus and you were getting together... I knew I was behind the curve and I had to redeem the time. I'm hanging out with you. God will take care of you, man, if you're sincere. He'll do it. So, the change is that initially you begin to separate yourself from the worst of the world. You feel good about it. Man, you're, you, gotta, you, gotta, you just took a bath. You feel so much better. And then you begin to learn because you add to virtue knowledge. But knowledge has to result in more virtue or else it becomes dangerous. And so what happens frequently is after time in church, a Christian makes friends with other Christians, and you find that some of those other Christians still do a lot of those worldly things. And now your new Christian friends do worldly things and somehow have a Bible verse or a way to justify that away. And they'll say things like, well, God understands. Oh, he understands a lot. And before you know it, you know what you don't have? You don't have temperance. Because you're supposed to add to your knowledge temperance. And if you're not careful, what happens is this. You become conformed to a church culture and not to Christ. Oh, and we are in an age where the typical church culture, well, it's kind of worldly. The world has entered the church. The church is supposed to go out into the world, but the world has come into the church. So letter B, the challenge is eventually there's confirmation to the best of the world. And I put best in quotes <laughs> because... 
The world is actually all evil. There's nothing good about it. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? You become familiar with the church language, and you're like, eh, whatever. You have contempt for it. So in your Christian growth, as time goes on, people grow. They've had an initial separation from the world, and now they struggle with their flesh. And they struggle with their flesh, and they start to realize that they can carry out some selfish, fleshly, self-gratifying behavior, but they do it in private. Nobody knows about it. So we talk, talked about it last week, the lust of uncleanness. There's sexual sin. There's pornography. Maybe it's in the issue of lust and greed and pride. And you let down your guard. And God says, watch out. Because more experienced believers over time find a routine that suits them. And we are creatures of habit. They think they're okay, and they begin to let down their guard against this world. So the Lord warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. You think you're okay? You think you're fine just because you show up at a church, or, or you can quote a few Bible verses, you think you're okay because you don't any longer do some of the very worst things that you did before you were saved, but yet still you can't ever get victory in your life? You think you can stand just fine? Take heed, take heed, because that's what happened to Lot. And because Lot pictures for us a Laodicean church believer. That's what he pictures. Lot the Laodicean. How do I know that? What are some of the characteristics of Lot from Genesis chapter 19? Number one, Lot tried to be relevant. You know, that's a big buzzword today. Everybody wants to be relevant, right? I'm just going to go in and become one of them so that I can reach them. It's a great missions principle, by the way. It's actually accurate. If you're going to reach the world, you have to be among them. It's not wrong. You just have to be careful. So 1 Corinthians 9, you know the passage, starting in verse 19. Paul said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, and them that are under the law as under the law, not that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, in other words, Gentiles with no law of Moses, as without law, not being without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Adaptation. Cultural adaptation is critically important. You need to be able to do that. You need to be relevant at some level. But it can go too far if you're not careful, if you don't take heed. Because what did Lot do? Well, it says that he dwelt among them. He dwelt among them. And I get it that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10, for example, we have to be among them. We can't separate ourselves totally from the world, then we have no influence in the world. So Jesus said you have to be in the world, but you don't have to be of the world, John 15, 19. You're not of the world, you're not worldly. But Lot saying that righteous man in dwelling among them ended up having them influence him instead of him influencing them, vexed his righteous soul. He identified with them. He called the Sodomites his brethren. He gained their respect because he sat in the gate of the city. But that didn't work too well, did it? He didn't really have any fruit in his ministry. He barely made it out with his daughters because the angels yanked him by his wrist. So he was relevant, but he lost his influence. Number two, Lot lost his influence. He might have had a form of godliness, but he had no power, 2 Timothy 3, 5. What happened? Well, they influenced him. He vexed his righteous soul with their unlawful deeds, with their filthy conversation. Did Lot participate in those things? Doesn't say that he did, but he sure enough surrounded himself with them. And he dwelt, that word, by the way, means feel at home. Among them, it said, in seeing and in hearing. So you have visual media, 21st century friends. You have TV, movies, internet. And hearing, you have audio media, right? 
You have commentary, news, political correctness. You have pop music lyrics. You have all kind of things that are bombarding your eyes and they're bombarding your ears. And your eyes and your ears and your physical senses, don't kid yourself, are gateways into your soul. And the world is coming at you and coming at you and coming at you. And you have to be very careful not to let it all in. Because 1 John 2 says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Lot lost his influence. Number three, Lot lost his testimony. He lost his testimony. He tried to go and talk to his sons-in-law. He tried to finally take a stand for the word of God. They laughed at him. Lot didn't have a testimony. He didn't have a life that said anything. He didn't have a history of having stood for anything. So when he tried to go and take a stand for what God finally told him to take a stand for, they laughed at him. He had no testimony. Number four, Lot lost his family. He had at least two daughters that had never known a man that got out with him. He had at least two more daughters that were married because they had sons-in-law, so that's plural, there's at least two, and he had a wife. He couldn't even keep them. By the time it was all said and done, just the daughters made it. And in a sense, they kind of they were forced out. Even his wife, who started on the journey out, couldn't seem, you know, you know how they say, you can, you know, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl, you know, or whatever. So she's on her way out, and she's like, you know, I, I kind of, what about my stuff? Or, you know, whatever. So she turns and look, looks back and poof, turns into a pillar of salt. She never made it. So Jesus warns us in Luke 9 and verse 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't, you can't plow a straight row if you're looking backwards while you're doing it. You can't look backwards and expect to be fit for the kingdom of God. That whole story in Luke 9, starting in verse 59, is where Jesus calls people to follow them. And when he calls them to follow him, what do they do? They begin to make excuses. Oh, well, let me first go do this other stuff, and then I'll follow you. Well, people do that today. Jesus is calling to each and every one of us, follow me, follow me, follow me. And people say, as soon as I get married and I get that down, my family is going to follow you. Well, then you get married and you're like, wow, we're, we're so busy working right now, but we, we'll settle into it, we will. And then you have kids. And you say, well, you know what, my kids, man, they require a lot of time. And boy, I got to work a lot to make sure I give them the best that this world has to offer. And then you just, well, when my kids grow up. Well, before you know it, you keep making excuses and, well, then you're old and it's over and there's nothing left. That's the story of Luke chapter 9. You can't look backwards, look forwards. He lost his influence, he lost his testimony, he lost his family. And the last point, he fathered enemies of God. Moab and Ammon become continual enemies of Israel and of God. The offspring of Lot. So there's only one solution. Get out. Leave. Be done. Separate yourself. That's the only solution. That's what the angels told him. Get out of Sodom. Get out. Leave. Separate yourself. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? We make these applications to marriage rightly because it is the most important personal relationship that you have on this planet but this can apply to a lot of things for ye are the temple of the living god as god hath said i will dwell in them and i will walk in them and i will be their god and they shall be my people wherefore here's the conclusion come out from among them and be ye separate saith the lord and touch not the unclean thing and i will receive you jesus prayed in matthew chapter 6 he's teaching his disciples to pray and in verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but notice, deliver us from evil. And where is evil present? In Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins, talking about Jesus, 
that he might deliver us from this present evil world. It's just that simple. Don't complicate it. You might not like hearing it, but God calls us to a life of being separate from this world. You are in the world. There are things you have to do to interact, but don't let the world be in you. That's the challenge. That's the call. That's the lesson of Lot, the Laodicean. Because God will judge all the godless, perverse societies, guaranteed. And the world system is not your friend. Be careful. Don't let it influence you. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you're okay standing, you better watch out because you're on a slippery slope. You just might be the next one to fall. And like back in Luke 17, we didn't read it. Verse 32 says, remember Lot's wife. What's that all about? Don't look back. Keep looking forward. You can be delivered from it. And that's next week's. Okay, next week we're coming back to this. And next week we're going to talk about exactly what did God do and what are the lessons we can learn as God delivered Noah from that evil society. As God delivered Lot. He did deliver Lot. Praise God for that. But Noah and Lot stand as two very different examples. Yet, both delivered and God can deliver you. Whatever you've been through, Wherever you're at, whatever's going on in your world, God can and wants to and will deliver you. He wants to know if you want it. Because if you do, he'll do it. This world is not your friend. The influence of the flesh is not your friend. And for sure, the devil is not your friend. These are all in place strategically to keep you from growing up in the Lord. So tell the devil where he can go and stand for the Lord. You want to do that? Let's pray together.